So the first thing that I want to I want us to think about is why do we do this? Why do we engage in Bible study or Sunday school? Is it not enough to hear the preaching of the word? Well, yes, the preaching of the word is certainly enough, but we can supplement it through study um, in a group like this or individually to help us understand what God has to tell us in his scripture and both preaching and teaching from the Bible, they're similar, but they're, they're quite distinct. But both are, on, are, are intent. The focus is to find out and to learn what God is communicating to us. J.I. Packer, that great theologian, wrote, If Scripture is indeed God himself preaching and teaching, as the great body of the church has always held, then the first mark of good theology is that it seeks to echo the divine word as faithfully as it can. You can see Packer there is connecting preaching and the teaching of the word. So he uses this word, theology, and that's, that scares off a lot of people. Uh, what is theology? Sometimes we think of theology as like, oh, that is so dry and dusty, and it's just talking about these really hard-to-understand doctrines, and, 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 and it's just not something I want to do. <clears throat> but really, um, theology is just the systematized knowledge uh, of God. It's, um, we get theology when we read our Bible or when we hear the Bible preached properly to us. We get it in a sense that um, it, it's not... It's, it's not systematized as in systematic theology where it's divided into, we have the theology uh, of, of baptism and theology of salvation, things like that in, in the study. But in the preaching, these things are, are joined together. And they're made, these parts are made a whole. And that's the marvelous thing about, about preaching. And back to... Packer, what he says about theology, that first, it's the activity of thinking and speaking about God. It's theologizing. So thus, you know, you've probably, or maybe you've heard of this statement from R.C. Sproul, which is in fact the title of uh, a book of his, Everyone is a Theologian. And that's certainly true, because everybody, no matter how they articulate their beliefs, about God is a theologian. They engage in theology in that. Even an unbeliever who says there is no God, that is a theology. They're, they're, they're thinking about God. So theology is important. <clears throat> it's vital, in fact. And you have engaged in it, whether you realize it or not. So that's theolo um, theologizing. And second, theology, uh, according to Packer, is the product of that activity. So we could have, like Sproul's work, everyone is a theologian, that's a systematic theology, that's a product of theology. So that's what we're speaking of. And why do we do this? Why do we engage in systematic study of theology? I would say one of the vital aspects of it is to protect the church and its members from false teaching and heresies. So we know what is true. We do not have to examine everything that is false if we know what is true. 
And if you, if you love church history, um, read about the church councils. We'll talk about them a little bit, I think, this morning, uh, and how they addressed heresy. And you can learn more about heresy. But, but that's not necessary unless you want to. Uh, learn that. If, we, if you know the truth, then the falsehood just sticks out. It's like, well, that's not the truth. I know that is false. That, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the important thing of this st- our studies here. And I think this is important, that we, we go beyond just memorizing um, individual Bible verses uh, to combat heresy and false teaching. So it's important for us to understand how the Bible fits together as a whole. And we can get that through good preaching, but our Bible study on top of that just like adds um, uh, power to it. It's like, um, it's like good nutrition coupled with exercise. You know, the, the, that's, that's a very powerful thing. So the, the false teacher and the heretic They'll use Bible verses to spread heresy. That's why just memorizing the verses, I don't think, goes far enough. It makes me think of, of the old uh, naval battles during the age of, of, of sailing, when the two, two opposing enemy warships would, would draw broadside to each other and just pound each other you know, with their cannon. And when we're just exchanging Bible verses, say, with someone from a pseudo-Christian cult, they know the Bible usually fairly well, and it's just Bible verse to Bible verse to Bible verse. But if we know how everything works together, and they, they misquote a Bible verse, they misuse it, we know the context that that verse fits into. And we can point out to them, friend, that, that's, that's not saying what you think it says. So rather than these two ships being broadside to broadside, we have different sails we can run up, we can use the wind to our advantage, and all these different tools that the Lord has given us are things that we should be making use of. And, and we shouldn't be afraid to go too deep into the Bible. I have heard Christians, self-professing Christians, who've said, yeah, you know, I just don't want to go that deep. In other words, they're not really interested in what God has to say to them. Um, you know, I understand we all have limits to our abilities intellectually and to think and to concentrate. I reach the ends of my limits many, many times when I'm preparing Bible studies or, or preparing sermons. But the Lord takes me to where he wants me to go, and he doesn't push me beyond that part because he knows, oh, Ken, that's beyond you. Just stop right there. You're going to get into trouble. So we started this back in October 2021 is when we started the Doctrines of Grace series. That was two years ago to this month, and time has really flown. So we, cut, we went through this until June of 2022, and then we broke for the summer, and now we pick it back up. So during that time, when we, we first got into it, we addressed the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God is not one of, the, of what we call the doctrines of grace, but it is so important to the doctrines of grace. The sovereignty of God is how all of these things fit together. And we had to understand the sovereignty of God first to see how these other doctrines really made sense. And we broke it up and we talked about God's will of command and his will of decree Will of command is the stuff that we know. We read it in the Bible, like the Ten Commandments. The will of decree is 
in essence, God's secret will. Who will be elect? Who is saved? We do not know that. God has not revealed that to us. We covered total depravity or radical inability, and we covered unconditional election or God's sovereign choice. So after having taken over a year's uh, hiatus from this, I think a quick review in a way of introduction would be helpful. Um, I don't expect those of you that were here in October 2021 to remember everything I said, because I don't. And there are many of you who were not here, so we'll gladly kind of, you know, go over it quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on any of these um, subjects that we already covered because then I don't think we'd ever move forward, and we do have to move forward at at some point. So by going over this, even if this is the first time you've sat uh, in this class, you will understand what the doctrines of grace are, what we are speaking about. Then we're going to get into it. Uh, more uh, specifically at a deeper level. But first off, I'm going to turn to God's Word. And we remember, as Paul says in Romans 11, chapter 11, verse 36, that we're doing this because for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. So the study of God's word, the study of God, the knowledge of God, I think is one of the greatest endeavors human beings can engage in. You know, we call a lot of things professions now, and that's all well and good. Um, Those that are labeled as professions now, rightfully so. But you know, there was a time at the the height of... uh, uh, the, the beginning of the great universities, there were only three professions. There was medicine, law, and theology. And theology was considered the queen of the disciplines. And I think I've mentioned this before. Um, we think queen, well, that, that means it's second, that something is king. But no, these, that label comes from the idea of playing chess. And I know many of you play chess. And what is the most powerful piece on the board? But the queen, the queen can do anything. She can go anywhere. She can overpower anyone. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm looking at my wife and I'm thinking about (laughs) the the all-powerful, (laughs) all-moving. Those of you who are married know exactly what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) So anyway, theology, theology was really so important. It was recognized as such, and, and it's kind of, of course, been replaced now, hasn't it, by, by other things. But it really deserves that key spot in our quest for knowledge. <clears throat> so, the doctrines of grace, we're going to get into this now. Or, they're also known as the five points of Calvinism. These are the fundamental elements of Reformed theology. So, when you think of Calvinism, think of Reformed theology. We're saying... Basically the same thing. But when we talk about doctrine, what are we talking about? Doctrine is what? Doctrine is Christian truth and teaching passed from generation to generation, considered authoritative and worthy of acceptance. Now the last part is very important. 
considered authoritative and worthy of acceptance. The church as a whole has decided that. It's not doctrine if you just find it in one place. You go to one church and they say, our doctrine is, and it's something you've never heard of, and you're well-versed, fairly well-versed in Christianity. That's not doctrine. That's an opinion. What is meant by the term of grace? Well, of course, that's gracious or merciful behavior on God's, God's part displayed towards people. Not only his people, but God displays grace towards all people in different ways. It is unmerited. That means we, we can't earn God's grace. He gives it to us freely. And Christianity's emphasis on God's grace is unique amongst the world religions. And it's, it is kind of odd to, to categorize our faith is among the world religions, right? Because it, it's something that is God-given. It's not man-made uh, or man-invented like, like others. But yet that's how, you know, in, you know, that's how the scholars would categorize it. And we find it, like we're not going to find the term grace per se in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament. What we find, the idea of grace is certainly there. It's there, it's very important. It's that Hebrew word hesed, which I've spoken of time and time again, which means steadfast love. And that's a really good way to understand God's grace. It is his steadfast love towards us. And in the New Testament, it's kalis, which is from a root, that's where we get the word charity. And it's from a Root word meaning to, re- to rejoice, to be glad. And in the New Testament, this Greek word is often translated as favor, gift, thanks, as, as well as grace. So then the doctrines of grace then are biblical truths taught and believed by Christians throughout church history. That's very important, throughout church history from the very earliest times. And they're about, they're concerned with God's actions to bring salvation to his people. It's about salvation. Now that's a very, salvation is a very deep topic. It's, um, and the thing I love about the doctrines of grace is it kind of breaks it down for us into five different parts that we can examine and kind of keep them, you know, straight in our head. It's not just like this really big, deep uh, ocean that that we suddenly dive in and there's so many things that we're seeing. So when we refer to the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism, they're often associated with the acronym, I have it over here, TULIP. Now, most of you have probably heard of that acronym. Um, It's uh, a tool, a memorization tool, to help people remember what the five points are. And the terms in order that TULIP is in were shaped to fit this this memorization tool. So they do not reflect the order in which these were, you know, um, established by the Christian church, nor the importance of it. And, and the, the terms that we use often are not, don't convey the, the doctrine maybe as clearly 
as it could because it's got to fit into T-U-L-I-P, right? So they, they come up with TULIP, this acrostic or acronym. So we have total depravity, unconditional election, these two doctrines we've already examined, limited atonement, so that's what we're going to be focusing on um, in the next few weeks. And then after limited atonement, we'll move on to irresistible grace and lastly, perseverance of the saints. Now, when you look at that, you, you, there's, you can't say, well, this one's more important than that one, that one's more important than this one. What we'll find, and this is one of the big takeaways I want you to keep in mind, is that how all of these work together, how you really cannot separate one from the other. Contrary to what many of our, 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 our brethren that call themselves four-point Calvinists who want to take one out and say, well, I just, can't, I just can't buy that. What I want you to see is how they work together. And bear in mind how they're all under the sovereignty of God. If we forget the sovereignty of God, then our tulip petals kind of fall off. And it doesn't look so good. So, even though we might call these uh, the five points of Calvinism, Calvin, Calvin did not invent these five doctrinal points. They didn't come from John Calvin. We, we find them in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Of course, you know, it's like we don't have the, the book of total depravity. And, you know, it's just the, the concept is just spread throughout. Right, and that's how God's word works, and there's very good reasons for that, um, which we don't really have time to get into. But but it's it's done exactly how God has decreed it to be done. So um, they're in Scripture. Jesus taught all of these points, even to his enemies. Paul wrote about these points to the churches in his teachings, in his instruction, in his correction. And these are the ideas that drove the Reformation in the 16th century, the great Protestant Reformation. But they go way back before then, before the Protestant Reformation in Europe. Which, if they're biblical teaching, of course, they must go back before the Reformation, right? We shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Christianity existed before Martin Luther nailed his thesis to the, 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 the cathedral door at Wittenberg. Just like our evangelical friends must remember that Christianity existed before Billy Graham started broadcasting. Sometimes we just think that whatever is, whatever is the great event in our um, version, if you will, of Christianity, uh, that it does, there, there are many things that predate it. And it's very helpful for us to realize that and look at these things. So we see these doctrines of grace in seed form really... Um, very early on in the church, used to refute heretical or false teaching. Uh, the, the, the one example that jumps out the earliest is in the 4th century AD, where uh, Augustine used it to refute the teachings of this British monk named Pelagius. Uh, Pelagius completely refuted, basically he, he denied the sovereignty of God and everything was of man's will. And Pelagius, he, you could say his heart was in the right place. That's why it's very erroneous for people to say, well, 
you know, God will look at his heart and know that he meant well. Well, Pelagius meant well, but he was, he was a dyed-in-the-wool heretic. He was upset over the, the immoralities he saw. He left the British Isles, traveled to Rome. He gets to go to the great city of Rome, and what he saw there shocked him. You've never seen such a thing that, that even priests and monks were involved in. And he comes up with this idea where man has got to f- act morally. That it's man's duty to reach to God in a moral manner. So Augustine refutes this, basically teaching these doctrines that we're going to be looking at. So our doctrines per se, the ones we talk about, they began with the Synod of Dort in the Netherlands in the early 17th century. I think I need to flip the board here. See if I do this without knocking over the pulpit and and the flowers and... Okay. So, the Synod of Dort. It met November 1618 to May 1619. So, this, this meeting defined the, the doctrines of grace that were to characterize the core tenets of Reformed theology or Orthodox Calvinism. We talked about it. These are the, that's the tulip stuff, right? <clears throat> so later on, later in the century, in 1647, these doctrines were um, affirmed by the Westminster Confession uh, in England. And then our um, uh, ecclesiastical forefathers the particular Baptists, they affirmed them in the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, which we adhere to, we confess to. And, and the doctrines go all through our, uh, our confession. So what was the Synod of Dort? That's, a, that's really a, a strange word if you've not heard it before. What is a synod? The synod is a formal meeting of church governance. Now, you've heard of church councils, probably. Well, church councils are called ecumenical councils, or of the whole world, councils of the whole world. A synod is generally a a meeting of a region. It's limited. It's not as widespread as an ecumenical council. And Dort was a city in the, the Netherlands, um, so both ecumenical councils and both synod, <clears throat> excuse me, synods are concerned primarily with addressing heresy in the church. There's no such thing as a, as a, as a council ever meeting to deciding um, how they were going to write the Bible, contrary to what popular modern novels may say. And we... The, uh, the, the, what we might call broadly the Protestant world, we recognize seven worldwide councils. The, the Roman Catholic Church has many, many, many more. They've, they've tacked about 15 more on, on top of that. A lot of them had to do with how to combat uh, Protestantism, how to combat the Reformation. So these are Reformed leaders meeting in Europe 
particularly the Dutch, and they'll make sense in a while. And the main purpose of the gathering was to answer the demands of the followers of this man, a professor of theology, Jacob Arminius. Arminius taught at a university in the Netherlands. He died in 1609. And in 1610, his followers, that is his students that were impressed by his theology, um, the following year presented to the state of Holland in the Netherlands a document of protest. Now, remember, if you know church history, at this time, uh, church and state was, was pretty much combined in the world, that your, um, your government would determine which church was legal in the country or state that you, that you lived in. Oh, and just an interesting thing about Jacob Arminius. So this is where our, our, our word Arminianism comes from, right? And we have Calvinism and we have Arminianism. And, you know, they're kind of uh, explained or, or demonstrated as being like this, right? Arminius, before he died, of course, said the best book in the world after the Bible is John Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. Now, obviously, he didn't agree with Calvin on everything, but they were fairly closely aligned, right? Uh, apparently, I mean, I haven't read much at all of Arminius's writings, so I, I, I can't attest to that. But for him to say that, that's, that's very high praise. <clears throat> so, his followers, they, they, they issued this protest, which was called then a remonstrance. They argued that the Dutch confessions of faith should be amended, should be changed to conform to their views. They weren't happy with the way the church was being run in the Netherlands. That, in other words, they wanted it switched from a Reformed viewpoint to an Arminian viewpoint. And subsequently, these followers, they themselves became known as the Remonstrants. So this is where these five points of Reformed theology, the doctrines of grace, come from. They are in answer to the points the Remonstrants made. They said, hey, we want, this is what we want the church to teach. And the five, there's five points of Arminianism, which I, I'm sure probably a lot of our Arminian Brothers and sisters don't even know there's five points of Arminianism, but this is what our tulip uh, is, is addressing. Um, number one, human ability. They hold man is not enslaved to sin, but is capable of believing in Christ prior to the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The sinner retains the ability to choose or reject Christ, re- choose or reject God as he or she feels is appropriate in their way of thinking. They can either cooperate and receive salvation or they can reject and receive damnation. Then conditional election. The Arminius hold that God's choice to save certain individuals was based on his ability to know in advance what these people would choose. <clears throat> now, our confession specifically denies this. This is important. That, and, and this is a kind of a, a, uh, an easy way of thinking to get around this, this, this issue of uh, 
God's sovereignty and man's so-called free will, which we believe in free will. So your Arminian friends who say, oh, you don't believe in free will. We do. We just don't believe in free will to the extent they believe. And we're not going to, we shouldn't get into that because <laughs> we'll never get through this. Anyway, interesting topic. So they come up with um, this, uh, the God knows in advance. So I've had my Arminian friends, well, that's just, you know, yeah, it's God's choice. But he knew I was going to accept Christ. So, you know, so that he made me one of the elect. Well, you see how God's sovereignty is destroyed in that? If God reacts to what we do, then who is sovereign? We are. We force God to make us elect. Or it's like, wow, I really wish Sally would have chosen my son. I really like her, but she didn't, so she's lost. I have no say-so over it. It's a weak view of, uh, of God. So the only people God has chosen for faith, according to this Arminian view, is those that he already knew would believe. So it's faith, if it's foreseen by God, is not really a divine gift, is it? It's just a confirmation of what is mainly a human choice. Therefore, the ultimate cause of salvation is the decision on the sinner. So this is what we call, remember Pelagius, that, that uh, Augustine uh, did battle with. This view that most Armenians hold is called semi-Pelagianism. I mean, they're not as, as whacked out on it as Pelagian, where it's all man's doing, but it's the idea of like, well, you go half the way, brother, and, and God goes the other half. You, we, meet, we meet in the middle. So there's some real issues in this when it comes to um, the sovereignty of God and man's free will. If we were to dig really deep in it, you end up in, in some predicaments. If you're trying to teach this conditional election, you run into roadblocks. So there's a Jesuit priest um, in the 1600s by the name of Molina. He came up with this idea that now is generally referred to as middle knowledge. And it's not biblical, but it's an idea philosophically to get around um, God's sovereignty and man's free will. How do we keep both of them intact? Because God's on his throne, but you better bet human free will's on a throne too. So we need to keep them both on a throne. How do we do this? Ta-da! Middle knowledge. I had to write, I always have, I can never remember it exactly. So I wrote it down. God has future knowledge of things which are not, but would be if certain conditions were realized. Thus, his knowledge is intermediate between mere possibilities and actual future events. I know that sounds kind of confusing, but um, I, the important thing is it's not biblical. And that you're going to find this uh, very much alive and very much a favored uh, um, theory in a lot of evangelical churches. Um, the, the big, because the big proponent of it is a very well-known uh, professor of philosophy 
uh, from Talbot at Biola, William Lane Craig. He, he very much is an advocate of middle knowledge, and a lot of Christians have jumped on that bandwagon um, <clears throat> because of that. So, like I said, this is a Jesuit theology. The interesting thing, those of you that come from a Roman Catholic background or have Roman Catholic friends whose family or friends say, well, the, the church teaches one thing. We don't have all of these. We don't have 732 denominations or whatever number they're using today. We have one church and one theology. Well, that's absolutely not true. Middle knowledge show, is, is a demonstration of it because this is a Jesuit theology. And guess who hates middle knowledge? The Dominicans. So you have the Jesuits and Dominicans in a theological war over this idea. There is not one theology in the Roman Catholic Church. There are many. The Dominicans follow after Thomas Aquinas. He was a Dominican. Molina was a, um, as I said, a Jesuit. So it may be called Molinism, not modelism. There's two different things. Those are modelists next door, the, 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 the uh, Unitarians, the, the one Jesus, one God sort. Um, Molinus is, is middle knowledge. <clears throat> then indefinite atonement. They, they, they think Christ's work on the cross makes salvation possible for everyone, but not actual for anyone. This is an important point. We're going to get into this much more deeply as we go through limited atonement. They also believe in resistible grace, which is contrary to irresistible grace, right? That makes sense. So the Holy Spirit, in this view, speaks to every heart, doing everything that he possibly can to persuade the sinner to trust in Christ. But, of course, the Holy Spirit is limited because he's God, right? God can only do so much. No, that's absolutely incorrect. That, that is false. That is putting, again, man's free will, man's decision is sovereign, and God, as someone once erroneously and famously said, and it gets repeated, and um, one of the reasons why I really should stay off Instagram and things like that, because these things pop up, someone posts it like, oh, this great truth has just been discovered. God is a gentleman. He will not make anybody believe something that they don't want to believe. Well, brothers, sisters, if God was a gentleman and and acted that way, I would be lost. And I would be so bold as to say I think many of you would be lost too if it was just up to us. So the Holy Spirit, according to this, cannot impart new spiritual life unless the sinner is willing to receive it. Most of us were very happy in our sin. Well, we were miserable in our sense, but it was like there's no way around it, right? I mean, it's just, that's just life. And, you know, you just follow your heart and try and make yourself happy. And, um, and you just, we find we make ourselves miserable and more miserable. And our hearts become blacker and blacker. And only Christ saves us. The last point is the uncertainty of perseverance or the defectable, or grace being defectable. Like you can defect from salvation. That you can be part of onward Christian soldiers and then you can become a turncoat. Throw down your banner of Christ and make for the enemy lines, you know, wiggle through no man's land and then declare yourself a traitor against God and align yourself back 
with Satan. Now, obviously, that, things like that happen, right? But, but clearly, what Scripture teaches us, John the Apostle speaks of this, our confession speaks of this, that those who were amongst us and have left us really were never of us, right? I've known many as, people, as I'm sure many of you have, who for a time, for a period, for an age, they can, through the excitement, the, 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 the sheer force and desire of human will, they can, they can lead what looks to be, what appears to be a Christian life. But if, 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 they're, if this is not of the Holy Spirit, humans cannot carry this out for long. They will, they will relapse. They will go back to their sinful ways, just like a dog, as the Bible says, a dog to its vomit, as gross as that is. That's, that's the illustration we're given. So man's will plays a device, decisive role, really. Thus, man, not God, determines who will be recipients of the gift of salvation. By contrast, Reformed theology insists that salvation is by grace from beginning to end. Salvation is a gift from God. We do nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. It is given to those whom God chooses to give it. It is offered to everybody, but not given to everyone. This is important, and we're going we're to talk about this at, at some length, because this is where our Arminian friends really stumble. Um, and it's an area that at times may be referred to as hyper-Calvinism, that, that, that this is so set that we need not even discuss the gospel with anyone. If God has made a person one of his elect, God will make that person into a Christian somehow. We don't have to do anything, which is contrary. I mean, we read the, we read the New Testament, we see that's not true. What did, what did, the, what did, what did Paul and, and, and the other apostles, what did they do? What did Jesus do? They preached. They preached the good news. They didn't like, okay, you know, um, our Lord was executed on the cross. He's risen. He's, he's ascended to heaven. Now we just got to sit back and, boy, watch what's going to happen because there's going to be Christian churches popping up all over. They're not going to know why they're popping up. They're just going to pop up because God is sovereign. Well, that, you see how, I mean, I'm, I'm really carrying it to an extreme just to show how, how this really is not biblical, that we really are part of this. God, in his, in his grace and his love for us, has made us part of his plan of salvation, that we can, we can join in with our humble, sometimes laughable efforts, and God makes great use of, of those things. He magnifies them and gives, gives them power. And once this gift of salvation is given and received, it cannot be lost by any means when it is the work of God. God does not fail. That's what's marvelous about what the Bible teaches us and what we are declaring in the doctrines of grace and in our confession. So, at the Synod of Dort, seven months they discuss what the remonstrants have brought forward. And this was, uh, this was a healthy academic debate. This wasn't like, nah, they believe something else and just, you know, and just blow, them, blow them off. They decided, they, they, they worked through this, right? How do we, because Christianity, once upon a time, almost worldwide, 
in the West at least, was serious business. Not such serious business anymore outside of God's true church. Our government could care less other than maybe, like, how do we keep these people quiet? How do we keep them to go along with what we want to do? No, this was a serious issue for virtually all Europeans at, at that time. They agreed after seven months that they needed to condemn the teachings of Arminianism and to affirm the doctrines which the remonstrants protested against in their five points. So these five doctrinal positions affirmed at the Synod in Dort became the hallmarks of Reformed theology. The tulip is an answer, a direct answer to each of these points that the Arminians brought forward. That's where this came from. First, unconditional election. So the election of the predestined is not based on God's foreknowledge of one's response to the offer of salvation, but only on God's secret will. Limited atonement. The synod declared that Christ died for an elect people against the remonstrance claims that Christ died for all people and it's up to those people to to finish the business. Thirdly, the corruption of man from the fall was pervasive. That's what we mean by the, the doctrine of, of, uh, uh, of total um, uh, inability. Or when we, when we use um, our term, we're, we're not, we're not, we don't mean that people are as bad as they possibly can be. Because God's uh, common grace goes out to all mankind. And there are people who are not saved, who are not Christians, that can act in a good human way. That they can, they can engage in acts of mercy and charity. So we're not saying... That, you know, that it just means we're just totally depraved where there's not an ounce of good in us. We, we cannot meet God's standard, basically, is what this is saying. They affirmed in our fallen state we still possess a knowledge of God, that, but human nature has been corrupted to, by sin to the point that we're unable to use this knowledge properly for our own conversion. And this is also true in things they call, quote, civil and natural, end quote. That is, our everyday lives, our everyday life and relationships are harmed by sin. We know that to be true just through lived human existence. So they refuted resistible grace with irresistible grace. Those who are elected and called by God will respond to God's calling at the time appointed for them to do so. And finally, the perseverance of the saints. We will persevere in grace and cannot fall from it. Though stumble, we may, and most likely stumble, we will. We may go through times where we're in a dry season, where it seems like, where's my faith? God carries us through those times. We are we, still in a fallen state, but we will not be lost. So each of these five doctrines of sin are inseparable from one another. Good old B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield of old Princeton, when Princeton was a great theological school. He says, now these five points form an organic unity. They're a single body of truth. They're based on two propositions that scripture abundantly supports. First is the complete impotence of man. 
Man is without power in this. And the second is God's absolute sovereignty in grace. And he says everything else follows from this. And indeed, it does. James Montgomery Boyce, Reformed theologian and pastor, and anything you come across by Boyce, by James Montgomery Boyce, I would encourage you to read. I have found him very edifying. He has a wonderful commentary on the Psalms, which is beautiful. Um, I highly recommend that. But he says, to fully appreciate the glory of God and the doctrines of grace, it helps to recognize the role of each person of the Trinity in the five points of Calvinism, election from God the Father. The atonement is a sacrifice of God the Son. The grace that draws us to Christ and enables us to persevere to the very end is the work of the Holy Spirit. Thus we see salvation is the work of the triune God. And with that, we will close. So you have a little bit of a break. Next week, we're going to pick up on this. We're going we're to get into our topic of limited atonement. And it's going to take us a while. It's a deep topic. I hope you enjoy it. I hope that you uh, benefit from it and that God be glorified in it. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time of study. Thank you for your word. Father, we give thanks for these, um, these good men of old, these, these saints who've gone before us, who've... Um, struggled over these things and have left wonderful records for us to draw upon, Father, that, to, that we may profit from and that may edify us. We give thanks for that. And we know it is by your decree and by your will that this has happened, Father. Bless the rest of this morning service. Bless the preaching of the word at 11 a.m. from Pastor Steve. And bless these brothers and sisters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.